Well, thank you, Midwestern community, for the privilege of sharing in this worship hour and uh, sharing in the Sizemore lectures. We're in part two today of uh, a talk I'm calling Just Jesus Taking His Full Measure. And as I said yesterday, it has to do with that best-selling book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dr. Dane Ortland. And in that book, he depicts the implications of Jesus' call for all who are laboring and are heavy laden to come to him because he is, as the book title states, gentle and lowly in heart. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's from Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. The validity, the importance of this aspect of Jesus' self-understanding and his demeanor can't be overstated. And in this lecture, I want to round out the picture of an empathetic Savior, the poignant picture of an empathetic Savior, by viewing Jesus from other angles. We're going to consider first the complexity of his gentleness, and then secondly, we're going to look at a fuller picture of that gentleness in three parts, and then we'll conclude. So number one, the complexity of Jesus' gentleness. Jesus was indeed, as he confessed, gentle and lowly in heart. But the Apostle Paul also had it right when he spoke of Christ as not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you in 2 Corinthians 13. And he urged the Corinthians to examine themselves given their ecclesial and their many personal pathologies. He asked them, do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, or could be translated among you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Two sides of Christ are evident when the apostle of Christ asks the Corinthians, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? 1 Corinthians 4. In Christ, either would have been possible. The Corinthians learned that Jesus, gentle and lowly, in apostolic embodiment, may necessarily and redemptively translate into confrontational and condemning. For the full measure of Jesus, we see gentle and lowly supplemented by qualities like stern and exalted, zealous and adamant, regal and unyielding, and finally, true and just. None of this disagrees with Ortland's portrait of Jesus, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about today, he touches on in his book. But we find ourselves in a climate that's a little bit like the fog and the drizzle outside. It's a climate in which there's reason to be concerned about spiritual lethargy and moral laxity and reckless disregard for Jesus in his role as divine judge which you can read about in many places, but most recently I was reading about it in John 5, 25 through 29. Divine judge in the lives of Christian leaders, to say nothing of the masses who are affected by the tone that leaders set. And what better to speak of these issues than in a seminary that trains leaders for this country's largest Protestant denomination. The climate I'm talking about in the Western English language church was glimpsed recently on the European website called Forum of Christian Leaders. It announced an online seminar entitled Recognizing and Resisting Spiritually Abusive Leadership. 
And it had these words. In the past couple of years, the evangelical church has tragically been engulfed by a number of appalling leadership scandals. These have included Bill Hybels, Mark Driscoll, and Ravi Zacharias in the U.S., and John Smith, Jonathan Fletcher, and Steve Timmis in the U.K. Some of these scandals have included physical and sexual abuse, whereas others have been more concerned with the misuse of power and authority and leadership. More and more victims of such spiritual abuse are coming forward, and there is an urgent need to evaluate the leadership models that might facilitate such abuse. I hardly need mention the ongoing turbulence in the SBC caused by charges of pastoral malfeasance, often in the sexual realm. Sex scandal has engulfed Roman Catholic clerics and that church's hierarchy for decades. A PCA leader and recent Sizemore lecturer, Michael Kruger, a few months ago published the book, Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. Everywhere we see people leading in Christ's name who do not live up to the standards that Christ modeled and called for and enables. In what follows, I want to draw on Scripture and Ortland's book to remind us of the complex fabric that constitutes Jesus' gentleness. In Galatians 3.1, Paul speaks of the public charismatic portrayal of Jesus, the Jesus who was preached and the effect it had, and how we need that portrayal and that effect in our own churches, in our world. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. How could they be missing it? But Paul feared they were. Are we? Number two, the fuller picture. With masterful focus, Ortland has set Fourth, a vision of Jesus as gentle and lowly. Three considerations will add to the clarity and the accuracy of this vision on our way to taking a fuller measure of Christ. So under number two, A, Jolton Jesus. By Jolton Jesus, I'm conjuring up the ancient memory, not ancient to me, but ancient to most of you, of New York Yankee Baseball Hall of Famer, Joe DiMaggio. He was known for his potent bat, and he was called Jolton Joe in the, news, in the papers. We need to add to the insight of the book, Gentle and Lowly, that Jesus came across as not only gentle, but also jolting, as numerous scriptures remind us. Some will recall Jesus addressing Peter as Satan at Caesarea Philippi. It's hard to attach gentle either to Jesus' outward behavior or internal disposition at many junctures in the gospel narrative. Jesus threw a lot of sharp elbows. F. Scott Spencer explores what he calls Jesus' vehement emotions in the important recent book, Passions of the Christ, the emotional life of Jesus in the gospels. But there is vehemence in his actions too, as when he cleaned the clocks of the money changers in the temple. Christ apparently performs a redemptive ministry of affliction unto death at Corinth, whereas Paul observes, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, 1 Corinthians 11. This was because of their eating, 
the bread or drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, making them guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Lord in Paul most often refers to Jesus Christ, not to God the Father or to God generically. Paul counsels the Corinthians to toughen up, to raise the bar on their ease with which they're sinning. Quote, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Our view of Jesus the gentle must not crowd out our acknowledgement of our Lord the judge, Paul concludes, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Short of their repentance and reform, they can expect Christ's judgment, which I take to mean his consternation and its consequences. This rather stern picture of Jesus stands in tension with points in the book, Gentle and Lowly, if we take them out of the context of the entire book. Three examples. In chapter 5, because of our sin, quote, looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. Looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness. Chapter 7, the sins of those who belong to God evoke from him not rejection, but compassion. In chapter 19, his mercy means, and I quote, our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more, unquote. This picture of a gentle Jesus who loves us more, the more we sin, is offset by two contrasting emphases in Ortland's book. Chapter 11, and I quote, while Christ is a lion to the impenitent, he is a lamb to the penitent. In chapter 21, if you are in Christ, your waywardness does not threaten your place in the love of God, unquote. There is indeed unfathomable and inexhaustible mercy at work in Christ's ministry to us in our sins prior to and since our conversion. At the same time, Ortland assumes something vital that we are penitent, that we are in Christ, that our forgivable waywardness is not calculating wantonness. But if we go on sinning, if we're people who sin presumptuously, we're reminded by the book of Hebrews that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, Hebrews 10. As Ortland's main point in chapter 11 has it, Christ is a lamb to the penitent. And I take this to be people like John has in mind in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There is just Jesus, Dekaias Jesus, the restorer of sinners who come to him. But Hebrews reminds us that some may go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Many pastors will attest concern that this sort of misrepresentation of following Jesus happens even among church members on a sizable scale. It is rampant in the world outside the church where by common grace, people know guilt and they sense God's judgment and they may make use of Jesus' name and words, but they do not turn to Christ 
in the kind of way that he calls for. In Ortland's words, for the impenitent, Jesus is a lion. He's not a gentle kitty cat. He is jolting in his upright force. So what happens when the impenitent identify as Christian? And this leads us to B under number two, the fuller picture. And under B, I want to look at Jesus according to John on Patmos, but this is the John who calls himself Martus. We translate that martyr or testifier or witness. If we turn the dial from the Corinthian letters in Hebrews to Jesus' living presence among selected churches as depicted in Revelation 1 through 3, we hear the lion's roar. And let's not wave these chapters away because Revelation is apocalyptic. It's also a pastoral missive. The Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, having exercised pastoral oversight of the seven churches of Asia from his residence in Ephesus. And note Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony or witness of Jesus. This is a message from within and out to the persecuted church, the grouping from which I said in the first lecture that we hear too little from regarding their view of Jesus. In Revelation 1 through 3, we hear not just about Jesus, but from Jesus in a time of church oppression and indeed martyrdom. How does Jesus represent himself to be known? Before we look at some Revelation passages, I would like to point out that Jesus' words in Revelation deserve special attention in light of recent studies that highlight the canonical force of the five-book Johannine corpus. And I'll name just three and this is the part of the lecture that's really the size more academic lectures. So people who are in academics and theolo theological studies or Bible will really like this. And the rest of you, just hang on. It's, it's pretty brief, okay? Uh, number one, Gregory Goswell's important article, The Johannine Corpus and the Unity of the New Testament Canon, published in Jets in 2018, presents the cumulative weight of John's writings which are often read in isolation and thereby weakened. Revelation, which we're going to look at, has much more to offer than fodder for eschatological imaginings. Number two, the work of Dirk Yongkent and others at Tyndall House in Cambridge, England, remind us, especially with their newly edited Greek New Testament, the most common order of the New Testament books in the church's first five centuries, when there was the most persecution, was the Gospels, and then bound together, typically, Acts, and what was called, well, it was called the Prox Apostles. It was Acts, and then James, and then First and Second Peter, then First, Second, and Third John, and Jude. So you had the Gospels, Acts, James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus, sort of book-ending, James, Peter, John, Jude. The effect of this ordering of the New Testament to, was to read Paul, who came after them, and at the end, after Paul came Hebrews, and then came Revelation. 
The effect was to encourage the church to read Paul's statements about faith apart from works, counterbalanced not just by James, like we tend to do, but also by Peter, Jude, and John, who all alike stress a faith that is expressed in doing, not just saying or claiming to believe. Therefore, we need to pay more attention to Jesus' teachings on faith and works in Revelation, coming as they do from John, whom Paul called a pastoral pillar of the Jerusalem church alongside James and Peter in Galatians 2.9. And thirdly, there are two books by Darian Lockett at Talbot School of Theology. First called, the first one called Letters from the Pillar Epistles, the formation of the Catholic epistles as a canonical collection, and then the more popular Letters for the Church, reading James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 through 3 John, and Jude as canon. These books add reinforcement to John's independent and authoritative witness to Jesus, gentle and just, a witness that is too often squelched in its rich fullness. In addressing the churches in Revelation 1 through 3, Jesus does not always come across as gentle. To the Ephesians, whose first love has cooled, the one who upholds and walks among his people warns, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The believers at Smyrna receive orders that are not gentle, but rather gruesome. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. I read these yesterday. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We can argue that these words come clothed in Christ's deepest, tender compassion. But humanly, it is harsh to be told to get ready to die after you have suffered 10 days, and that it is the devil who will do this to you. The church at Pergamum is praised for its valor, despite its member Antipas being killed, 2.13. But Christ calls for serious reform in that church, or he says he's going to wade in with lethal weaponry, the sword of his mouth, to wage war against some of them. To the church at Thyatira, Christ's words are stern and somewhat menacing. He does affirm them. Quote, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But Christ continues to address what sounds like a sizable group in the church. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Even if we grant that these are healing words of redemptive direction due to their source, Christ the Savior, they hardly sound gentle. Jesus the Lamb is also, as Ortland has it, the Lion. Even to those at Thyatira who have not succumbed to Jezebelism, the call is demanding, insisting on conquest and gritty perseverance. He calls on them to live so as to receive authority from Christ to mirror a mastery over what's called the nations, which I take to mean the Gentile non-believers. Just as Jesus, tough as nails, remained true to God when he was pressed by the ungodly 
of various ethnicities. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. There is not much gentle in the spirit or substance of those words. So with the words to Sardis, which are positively chilling, chapter 3, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. To the Laodiceans, he expresses disgust. He offers them no gentle words of diplomacy, He does not accept their insipid complacency. He demands that they come to terms with their wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked condition in which they are boasting and feel very comfortable. He does not whisper assuringly that he is there with them, affirming them. He pictures himself rather as standing outside their doorway and knocking to try to get back in. According to an apostolic pillar of the church, In the era when the Greek word martus, one who testifies or witnesses, began to take on the meaning of someone killed for their Christian confession, we may well call Christ not only gentle, but jolting. Letter C, under the fuller picture. Just Jesus, with an apostrophe, force of character. So Jesus, force of character, but just Jesus, force of character. The title of this lecture, Just Jesus, plays on a double meaning. We want to know just who Jesus was and is to us today. But just also translates the Greek word dikaios, which appears 79 times in the New Testament and most often describes people who are religiously and morally upright. Ortlund rightly points to 1 John 2.1, our advocate with the Father is Jesus Christ, the just one, Iezun Christun, He notes that Jesus is called there the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2, 2, which means, Ortland continues, that he assuages or turns away the just wrath of the Father toward our sins. Here Jesus performs the work that makes it possible for him to be gentle toward sinners. He paid for our sins with his blood. He absorbed God's wrath for our sin by offering the perfect sacrifice for sin. He was, in the words of another Jerusalem pastoral pillar, the just, dikaios, dying for the unjust, adekoi, 1 Peter 3.18. Therefore, just Jesus, dikaios, Jesus, can be gentle Jesus, for he has borne our sins to be remembered against us no more. Yet, what about Jolton Jesus seen above? I believe that Jolton Jesus leveraged his just personage to portray a nimble and a nuanced gentle. Because he is dikaios, just, 
His perceived persona was not always gentle. Due to the hostile circumstances that called for a gentle and lowly that was equally righteous and true, Jesus' uncompromising sternness when it was called for was just as expressive of his heart as his gentle visage. There's need to recall how relentless and unyielding Jesus was to the sinners and the sufferers who made up the ruling class in Jerusalem and most of the residents of Judea and Galilee in the end who did not receive Jesus or the gospel. Just as they disapproved of John the Baptist and they rejected the legitimacy of John's message and baptism, for the most part, they opposed and they undercut Jesus for the whole of his three-year ministry. My esteemed teacher and Jesus scholar Walter Elwell long ago compiled a list of why religious leaders opposed Jesus. With apparent exceptions like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they did not see the gentle for a dozen reasons. I'll just touch on six of them in the interest of time. They stonewalled Jesus because of, number one, their jealousy. He was readily accepted by the common people. And this seemed as despicable as a Trump rally might to many today. Number two, his authority. He taught with an authority that superseded theirs. And this came across to them as infuriating arrogance. Number three, his perceived recklessness. Jesus made messianic claims or incipient messianic claims that Roman rulers might interpret as treasonous. And this looked like irresponsible brinkmanship, risking slaughter by Roman legions at Pontius Pilate's disposal, which actually happened in the 60s when the Romans got fed up with revolutionary rumblings in Judea and Galilee. Number four, his liberal attitudes. Jesus simplified the law and rejected established customs. No wonder he was accused of blasphemous disrespect, like violating the Sabbath. Number five, his social practices. He associated with the wrong people. Clearly, he was a sinner just by guilt from association. And six, his lack of rabbinic education. He was not educated under a recognized teacher. We might say he rejected the science, the knowledge of the elite who could enforce their learned viewpoint. The point here is that Jesus was perceived by most among the ruling class of Judea, to whom many looked for guidance, as everything but gentle and lowly. Of course, Dr. Ortland knows this, and in a sense, these, shall we say, brusque qualities of Jesus do not necessarily oppose the thesis that he was gentle and lowly to the sinners and sufferers who came and who come to him. But to the extent that many then and now came and come to Jesus, posing as sinners and sufferers, but in God's knowledge of our hearts, really looking for approval of what God rejects, Jesus' gentle aspect is matched by a shrewd, and steely side that is not going to allow us to deceive ourselves nor to think that we can deceive him. This is evidently overlooked by Christian leaders in the news who somehow presume on God's grace in Christ and think they can sin and get by with it. There is reason to believe that a sin-affirming, 
Misunderstanding of Christ's grace is widespread among the church's rank and file. The very nature of the dikaios justness that defines Jesus is not merely that he is just to forgive on the basis of his shed blood. Dikaios here also means righteous. Through faith, those united to Christ share in his righteous identity. We are not powerless against sin because Jesus, the righteous one, defeated it. He rose. And as Ortland notes in chapter 8, he intercedes for us. As Ortland summarizes there, Christ's, and I'm quoting now, Christ's saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to make intercession for us. I want to underscore that Christ overwhelms sinning not only by forgiving us no matter how miserably we fail, but by transforming us so that we are trending away from such failure and toward behavior that is dikaios. As John puts it, 1 John 2, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk or live in the same way in which he walked. I take it that this is the point of 1 John's repeated and controversial assertion that no one born of God sins. 1 John 3, 6 and 9 and 5, 18. This can't refer to sinless perfection because Chapter 2, verse 1, we've already seen, concedes that believers sin. But numerous verses in 1 John declare an end to sin's stranglehold in believers' lives. For greater is the one who is in them than the one who is in the world. And faith is the victory that overcomes, not that cowers in sinful paralysis. He appeared, we read in 3.5, in order to take away sins to replace them in our lives with godliness, not to create a diabolical haven of acceptance of sin. Jesus is both gentle to forgive and untiring in a lordship that thrusts us, thrusts us upward out of sinful defeatism and self-pitying brokenness into a relationship with him in which grace does not condone failure, but rather enables believers to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10. So number three, conclusion. It's allergy time again. It was not the intent of Ortland's bestseller, gentle and lowly, to situate Jesus in the milieu of the first century Judaism in which his ministry unfolded. But a scholar who has done that, named Matthew Thiessen, in his book, Jesus and the Forces of Death, writes this, Jesus' presence on earth introduces a power of holiness within the terrestrial realm that is both radically opposed to and stronger than the demonic He suggests that Jesus embodied, quote, the holiness of Israel's God in a way that actualized God's control over the demonic forces that plagued humanity. The demonic expression in humans called sin and its consequence, death, are our scourge. It's the great service of Ortland's book to have sounded the call that the blood of the cross covers the stain of sin. Believers can take solace in their struggles, 
In the words of the well-known Johannine verse, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, dekaios, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It has been my aim to augment Gentle and Lowly's message with just this, that cleansing is potent. Just Jesus, dekaios Jesus, not only forgives, but equally fortifies. In Thiessen's formulation, he actualized God's control over the demonic that plagued humanity, resulting, let it be emphasized, in Christ's capacity as the good shepherd, John 10, to comfort believing sinners right alongside us in our defeat and despair. But that same just character equally takes a determined stand against any who look to him for comfort in unholy acts and patterns that he deems unacceptable and no longer tolerable, as we see in Revelation. This opposition expresses itself in Christ's ultimatums, tailored to each individual setting and audience and person to repudiate sin to maintain full fellowship with him. What does it feel like to live in fellowship with Jesus who is both jolten and gentle? I want to close with a snapshot from a part of the world where faith in Jesus gets a lot of people killed. A former student of mine and his wife have cared for refugees, and they've evangelized, and they've organized Christian cell groups in this overseas location for nearly two decades, and they recently shared this. Our newest refugee intern is a Kurdish-speaking Syrian At their regular meeting, that's the meeting of the little enclave in the camp who have become Christians. They're all Muslims. He recently explained how stressful it was for him when people started to ask if he had become a Christian. He has a clearly Muslim name and background. And here's what he wrote or said, which is, I don't even know what languages all this is translated from, but but here's the quote. I felt my heart speed, and it was like I had a fever. I felt like my face was turning red. I had two verses in my mind at the same time. I remember Jesus saying that whoever denies him before men, he will deny before his Father in heaven. There's Jolton Jesus. I also remember Jesus telling his disciples not to worry about what to say when they're questioned, that he would give them the words to speak. There's gentle Jesus. This is just what happened, and I didn't put just in there. It's really there. This is just what happened. I said, yes, I am a Christian. Then I talked for two or three minutes explaining, but it didn't feel like I was the one talking. It was like I was listening to someone else talk. Now I feel so much more comfortable answering the question, I just tell people that I am a Christian. End of quote. May we, in our settings, know, affirm, and by faith embody this just Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we pray for this brother, for his protection and truthfulness in ministry of the good news of salvation, along with the community that he is ministering in and to. And we praise you for Jesus, not only gentle comforter, 
but also mighty conqueror raised from the dead to raise us to newness of life in this life. We seek, welcome, and worship no less than what you offer, Jesus our Lord, in his full measure. In his name, amen.